Well, as we turn to God's Word this morning, please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation's easy to find. It's the very last book of the Bible. Um, Unless you have the book of maps uh, in in the back of your Bible, then it's just to the left of the maps. Our title today is uh, Martyrdom and Disaster. Just want to review some things uh, from last week. Uh, The weight of evidence would indicate that between uh, chapters 3 and 4, um, an event has happened that uh, is known as the rapture of the church. And John, having been called uh, up into heaven uh, in his vision, parallels that uh, that happening. The church is not mentioned again until she appears uh, as the bride of Christ in chapter 18. So all of the action from chapter 4 onward, whether in heaven or on earth, is reported from the vantage point of heaven. So if John was a a reporter uh, for a news network, he'd conclude each section uh, now from now on with, I'm John the Apostle and I'm reporting from heaven. Um, So there's the resurrection of Jesus. This thing's fun. I I like this thing. Um, And then 40 days between the resurrection and his ascension, After the ascension was the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church age. And then at the end of the church age, Jesus will come and rapture the church. First Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 to 18. You can read that there. The rapture of the church following the rapture then begins this period of seven years that the Bible calls the tribulation. And at the end of those seven years, Jesus will come again. He'll set up his, his, uh, throne on earth, and for a thousand years he'll reign from earth on earth. And then uh, at the end comes the lake of fire, great white throne judgment, new heaven, new earth. Um, Going to be exciting times. In chapters four and five, over the past couple of weeks, we have seen a dramatic scene in the throne room of heaven, in which a scroll bearing seven seals was visible in the right hand of God, uh, the one who was seated on the throne. We learned that the scroll was the, something to the effect of the title deed to the universe. And there's a mighty angel that asks a question, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But there was no reply. If you've ever wondered if there's going to be crickets in heaven, uh, there was at least for that moment. Just crickets. No one answered. No one was worthy. No reply. No one in all of heaven and earth was found worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And then at that point, John the apostle who, who received this resurrection from the, or this vision from the resurrected glorified Jesus and who's our travel guide through this book begins to weep. Why did he weep? Perhaps he wept because uh, there was, in fact, no heir to the throne of the universe than the present ruler of this world, who is Satan. And then everything would go on as it always has. And perhaps he wept because if Jesus was not worthy, then neither was he who he had claimed to be. And all that remained for humanity was God's judgment and condemnation. And yet one was found who was worthy. Just one. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb 
who was slain for the sin of the world, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And as the Lamb was introduced as the rightful heir to the throne, and the only one worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, all of heaven, all of earth, broke out in wave after wave of unrelenting worship. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Last week we began our discussion of the seven-year tribulation period. What is What exactly is the tribulation? Well, the tribulation is the label that is applied in Scripture to a period of seven years, a, a week, it's referred to, a week of years, that was first prophesied 2,500 years ago uh, by the prophet Daniel. It is yet still to come to pass in the future. And it will include the appearance and the administration of a powerful leader who will bring the whole world under his rule. The Bible refers to him as the Antichrist. And the Bible says that as one of his first actions, he's going to establish a false covenant of peace with the people of Israel, allowing them then to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Whether that will be on the Temple Mount, uh, I do not know. It probably will be. How that will come to pass, I do not know. But in the middle of those seven years, he's going to dictate that the sacrifice and offerings that had resumed in that temple would be terminated three and a half years into those seven years. And he will set up a throne for himself in the rebuilt temple, thereby desecrating the temple and and then present himself to the world as a, not as a mere political leader, but as a God to be worshipped and to be obeyed. Those who refuse to submit to him, and there will be many, will be summarily executed. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the angel Gabriel calls this leader the one who makes desolate. The second half of those seven years will be a time of death and destruction and misery unparalleled in the history of the world. And at the close of those seven years, Christ will return to earth triumphantly with his church. He will defeat the Antichrist and and uh, all who were allied with him. And he's going to establish his kingdom on earth then for that period of a thousand years that is referred to as the millennial reign of Christ. Last week, we saw the opening of the first four seals, each of, each of which um, triggered the emergence of a horse and its rider. We saw that the white horse and its rider in Revelation 6, 1 to 2, symbolized false peace. That probably represents this uh, false covenant that, that Antichrist will make uh, with Israel. Uh, then the red horse and its rider were permit, permitted to take away peace from the earth. And so we'll simply identify this as war, Revelation 6, 3 and 4. And then in verses 5 and 6, the black horse and its rider symbolized severe economic in, uh, inflation and resulting famine, uh, incredibly high costs of food and, uh, and widespread hunger. And then finally, the pale horse and its rider symbolized death 
And we read there that a quarter of the earth's population, uh, in excess of 2 billion people, will be killed by sword, by famine, by sickness, and attacks from wild beasts. It's important to remind ourselves that that there are uh, a few other very important things going on during the tribulation period. As Jesus claims his inheritance, he is also then evicting the squatters on his property um, in preparation for that thousand-year reign on the earth. But he's also using this period of time to convict his own people, Israel, of their sin, uh, of their rejection of him, of uh, his identity as their promised Messiah, uh, and uh, and then to draw them to himself. Paul says that during this tumultuous time, there's, there's going to be a great turning of the Jews to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. And we saw this scripture last week from the prophet Jeremiah, who said, Alas, that day, referring to this tribulation period, is so great that there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, that is Israel, yet he shall be saved out of it. Notice that, he shall be saved out of it. So this morning we'll examine the breaking of the next two seals, uh, numbers five and six. But before we do that, uh, for those who who may have missed it last week, let's let's review another chart. Um, go ahead to that next one. So here we're, we're dealing right now with the seven seals. We're going to deal with five and six. Uh, the seventh one comes a little later. There's an interlude uh, before we get to the seventh one. But then that'll be followed by seven trumpets in Revelation uh, 8, 2 to 9, and, uh, and 21 to 9, 21, and then uh, 11, 5, and 6, and then followed by seven bulls. The seven trumpets are um, judgments on the earth. There will be angels blowing those trumpets. And then the bulls represent plagues that are poured out by angels on the earth. It's going to get ugly. Um, but it's helpful to me. I hope that's helpful to you. When I'm trying to wrap my head around all that's going on in a book of the Bible, and especially this one, um, it's helpful to see the structure and kind of understand the flow of what's happening. In the seventh trumpet are contained all seven, or in the seventh seal is contained all seven of the trumpets. And in the seven trumpets is contained all seven of the bowls. So you might say that in the, in the first seven seals, we see the whole of the book of Revelation. It's, it's in a sense an overview, um, but it begins with Jesus uh, opening that title deed to his inheritance of the whole universe and, um, and then breaking its seals and reading the scroll. You know, um, all of us would rather hear and think about the grace and the forgiveness of God, wouldn't we? I mean, uh, we'd rather dwell on that. We, we love to think about that that incredible view of God's throne that we saw in chapters 4 and 5 with millions upon millions of angels and all of the redeemed singing songs of worship to God and to the Lamb. Uh, but if we're faithful to the Scriptures, we, we have to equally recognize that a day is coming when the wrath of God is going to just be poured out on the earth 
Um, and on all who have rejected the righteousness that the merciful God has graciously offered to us through his son, Jesus. Uh, the same God who, who right now extends grace and forgiveness to all who will receive it has promised that he will someday judge the sin and the rebellion of those who reject his love and his grace. And that's the scene that we're surveying here in Revelation 6. And with that, let's stand together and read our scripture text for this morning, Revelation 6, 9 through 17. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. And the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place." Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Would you bow in prayer with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Would you, Lord, by your spirit, teach us today. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to take heed and to obey the things that you show us today. And Lord, uh, for those among us who have not yet trusted in Christ, we pray that this might be the day that they make that decision to turn their heart in faith and repentance and belief in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. We pray today for the nation of Israel. We love them. We bless them. We pray that you'd give them great success. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're, we're witnessing uh, what will happen as Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, breaks the fifth and sixth seals from the scroll. So let's start with the fifth seal and allow me to read again, um, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Um, you know, uh, the language of the book of Revelation is, seems strange, doesn't it? It seems very foreign to us. And so uh, I want to break this down uh, as simply as I possibly can so that we can really understand what's going on here. 
There are six questions that are answered in this passage, and I'm just uh, putting putting questions to the answers. First of all, who did John see? Secondly, where did he see them? Third, when did they arrive there? Uh, fourth, uh, what were they saying and why? Fifth, what were they given? And sixth, what were they told to do? And uh, you don't have time to write all those down, but you will have time momentarily. First then, who did John see? Who did John see? Verse 9 says that he saw the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are believers in Jesus Christ who have been martyred for their faith and for their witness. The language is almost identical to John's description of himself in the very first chapter of verse 9, he said, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. As John received this vision, he was in exile on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Matthew recorded in chapter 24 of his gospel that Jesus, speaking of the tribulation period, warned his disciples that this would take place. And he said, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now I should pause here and remind you uh, of what this word tribulation means in everyday use. Um, it simply means intense internal pressure. As we read these things, we, we, we might be inclined to say, no, it's external. But no, it's internal. Um, I don't know who first coined the expression between a rock and a hard place. You've heard that expression. I don't know who first coined that, but, but it characterizes the meaning of this word very well. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, little lowercase t, little t. In this world you will have tribulation. In the present time you will have tribulation. You're going to have struggles in your Christian life. You're going to have uh, internal tension between uh, what you know is right to do, uh, how you ought to obey, and, and the choices you make instead. You, you know that tension. Um, it's the test with regard to our faith of whether you and I will hold fast to the word of God and our testimony uh, regarding Jesus or fold fast when we're faced with temptation, with opposition, with persecution, any kind of affliction or distress. I remember hearing someone say years ago, I can resist anything but temptation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's kind of funny. <laughs> but but remember that that it's not the word of someone who's going to hold fast in the face of tribulation, right? Uh, tribulation with a little t is the test of the genuineness and steadfastness of our faith in the day-to-day and that can be hard enough. Jesus said that if anyone refuses to acknowledge him, to identify with him, to confess him, then neither would he identify with them before his Father in heaven. So the test of the tribulation is not a test of how you handle external pressure. 
It's a test of who you are on the inside. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it's said of those who will come to faith in Christ during this tribulation period, that they defeated him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. The blood of the lamb covered their sin. They didn't give in to tribulation, the internal pressure, uh, internal pressure to, to save their own lives by selling Jesus out. As the message Bible puts it, they weren't in love with themselves. They were willing to die for Christ. So those whom John saw were martyred saints who had been slain, who had been executed, slaughtered, is the actual meaning of the word, for their faith in God and their unrelenting testimony regarding Jesus. So the next question is, where did he see them? Where did he see them? And the answer is, he saw them under the altar. Uh, what a what a seemingly odd place for them to be, right? I remember when I was young, and I first read this, I had this mental image of a whole bunch of people crammed underneath a dining room table and the tablecloth pulled all the way down. And and honestly, that image has never left me. It just seems odd. Here they are under the temple or under the altar. How many of them? They're all crammed under the altar. Strange, strange image. What are they doing under there? Go with me to Exodus 29, beginning at verse 10. Instructions regarding sacrifice, then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron, the high priest, and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour, notice, at the base of the altar. In Old Testament times, when a priest presented an animal sacrifice, the the animal's blood was poured out at the base of the brazen altar. In Old Testament imagery, um, blood represents life. For example, in Leviticus 17.11, it's written, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Remember that as we celebrate communion just a little later. So here in Revelation, the presence of the souls of the martyrs under the altar is an indication of two things regarding them. First, that their sins have been atoned for by the blood of the Lamb. And secondly, that they had been willing to surrender their own lives rather than to deny Jesus. The next question is, when did they arrive there? Before I answer that question, I'd like you to answer this question for me. At the rapture, what percentage of those who have been genuinely born again by faith in Jesus, whether living or dead, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever? What percentage? 100%. That's the answer. All who are genuine believers, right up to the moment that Jesus descends from heaven, will be raptured. They'll be taken home. 
to the place that Jesus has prepared for us. And what that means is that at the start of the tribulation period, there will be no, read it, zero believers remaining on the earth. None. Zero. Not a, not a single one. So who then are these martyrs at the base of the altar in heaven? The answer has to be that these are men and women, boys and girls, who will come to faith in Jesus after the rapture of the church during the tribulation period. And what that tells us is that, what else that tells us is that during the tribulation, there will be two dynamics at work. There will be great revival on the one hand and great martyrdom on the other. Now, one of the questions I've asked, and many others have as well, is will people actually be able to come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period? And the clear answer seems to be yes, that there will be many who will believe in Jesus during uh, these seven years. But it's going to be extremely difficult for them to make the choice to publicly declare their faith because the majority of those who trust in Christ as Savior and publicly identify with him will be summarily executed. Those who trust in Christ in those days will be forced to stand the acid test of being faithful even unto death. One commentator said martyrdom in those days will be as common as it is relatively uncommon today. Tribulation. Internal struggle. Internal pressure. Who will I be? Who will I identify with? Will I love my life so much that I will avoid martyrdom at all costs? The next question is, what were these martyrs saying and why? We read there in verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the word that John uses here for cried out describes something more like a scream or a shriek. It's actually an onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like what it means. Their cry is filled with intense passion. And the question is not whether their enemies would face the judgment of God, but when. How long, O Lord? Holy and true. How long before you'll judge and avenge our blood? It isn't a cry for revenge. It's a cry for justice. For God's holiness, for his righteousness to be vindicated. And in a sense, whenever a believer today sincerely prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're echoing the cry of these martyrs. That cry for justice and vengeance is in the same spirit as the prayer of the psalmist in chapter Psalm 94, where he said, Arise, O judge of the earth, give the proud what they deserve. How long, O Lord, how long will the wicked be allowed to gloat? How long will they speak with arrogance? How long will these evil people boast? Perhaps you've felt that way yourself. 
Then in verse 11, they're given something. What, what are they given? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And just so there's no confusion, I, I just want to clarify these are, these are not white terry cloth bathrobes. Like you'd get at a resort, you know, or upscale hotel. Uh, in spite of the fact that they're told next to, to rest a little longer. Something infinitely more significant is happening here. These white robes are garments of righteousness. And in the next chapter, we're, we're going to see a vast crowd, too large to count, it says, of, of men and women, boys and girls, who will believe in Jesus during this tribulation period, during these difficult years. And it is said of them, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't it interesting that something can be made white by red blood? Every one of the souls of these tribulation believers will be clothed in white robes as they await their own resurrection. And the final question we want to ask here has to do with the latter part of verse 11. What was it that they were told to do? They're told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. I think the realization as as you read through the book of Revelation is that there are going to be thousands, if not millions of believers who will be executed for their faith in Jesus during these years. They will seal their witness for Christ with their own blood. And it appears that none of these tribulation martyrs will be resurrected until the close of those days, until the close of the seven years. There will be, as it were, a a graduating class representing not just one year, but seven. And there's something else here as well. God seems to be saying to these martyrs that their sacrifice was not an accident. On the contrary, it was an appointment. Because he says, others will yet join you. Others are appointed And that declaration is so consistent, isn't it, with the the character of God and his grace and his mercy. Notice that he didn't say, I'm delaying judgment in order to make the wicked suffer a little longer. I, I just want to insert the knife and twist just a little longer. Not what he's saying. On the contrary, he says, I'm delaying because I'm still waiting for those who are appointed to turn to me in faith. Even in the deaths of his people, God is in control. So for us as his people, there is nothing to fear. Psalm 116, 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his holy ones. And then the sixth seal was opened. And it would be difficult I think, to paint any scene more disastrous, more catastrophic, more awe-inspiring and terrifying than the one described here. Beginning at verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, and again, this is John speaking, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood 
And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. When you read a passage like this, there's just kind of a shock factor for the moment, isn't there? And you just kind of go... But as you reflect on this, you'll realize that all of the action in verses 12 to 14 is triggered by and centers on the effects of what appears to be the stepmother of all earthquakes. Why the stepmother? Why not the mother? Well, the mother of all earthquakes seems to be the one that's yet to come in chapter 16, verse 18, when the final bowl of wrath is poured out on the earth. And we read there, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. You know, people in the Seattle area always talk about, you know, we're waiting for the big one, right? Uh, Whatever happens here in Seattle is going to be nothing compared to uh, that day. I'm neither a seismologist nor a volcanologist, so I'm not going to pretend technical knowledge that I don't possess. Uh, but I've read just enough to know that one megaquake can trigger another and even set off a chain uh, of earthquakes that in turn produce an exponential number of aftershocks. Uh, my wife and I uh, and our daughter, who was one year old at the time, were living in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1989 when that Loma Prieta earthquake struck, and we witnessed firsthand the extensive damage that it caused all around the Bay Area and even beyond. It was mind-boggling, uh, enormous, but it was only 6.9 on the Richter scale. What appears to happen as this sixth seal is opened is that all of the earth's fault lines are going to fracture. All of the earth's tectonic plates will be set in motion, leading to a a worldwide catastrophic earthquake. Imagine a worldwide earthquake. An earthquake of such significant impact can also trigger volcanic eruptions. And so many believe that 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 will be the reason for John's description of the sun uh, becoming black as sackcloth. And sackcloth in those days was usually made from the wool of black goats. And, And the moon appearing as blood as the atmosphere is just saturated with smoke and ash. The prophet Joel saw this coming. He described this event in these words, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The prophet Zephaniah also foretold it. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
prophet Isaiah also saw it coming. He wrote, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And again, understand that God is sovereign, that he is in firm control of history. These prophecies were made thousands of years ago regarding a day that is coming and yet they're pro- and 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 hundreds of years apart from each other and yet their prophecies coincide precisely verse 13 seems to describe a a meteor shower of epic proportions the best i can make what what john meant to express by the sky vanishing like a scroll being rolled up is anyone's guess but don't miss that so great was this earthquake that every mountain and island was removed from its place. I I can't even begin to imagine that. And yet that's what it says. Every mountain and island shifted on the globe. It's impossible for our minds to even begin to comprehend the enormity of the natural disaster that's being described here. But these aren't mere natural disasters, are they? Perhaps it's better to describe them as natural disasters caused, brought about by supernatural causes. In verses 15 to 17, John continues. Here's the, here's the reaction of humanity. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, that's uh, military commanders and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And again, the prophet Isaiah, by the Spirit of God, saw all of this coming. He wrote, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. So what John is now describing is universal panic experienced by everyone from the rich and powerful to the poor and powerless, from the up and ins to the down and outs. No one is excluded from this universal panic. Notice with me what the mass of humanity has realized. It's that what they are experiencing is in fact the great day of the wrath of the Lord. How ironic that they would, that they would even begin to identify what it is. 
although they've rejected the Lord, his will, his ways, his son, Jesus, his offer of forgiveness and salvation, they've rejected his word, they nevertheless know intuitively what it is they're experiencing and why. And look where they go for relief. Do they, do they run to God's mercy? To his presence and humility and repentance? Do they throw themselves on his mercy? No, they don't. What do they do? They run like hunted animals to cracks and crevices in the earth to hide themselves from his face, it says. Vance Havner once wrote that the day would come when the most expensive piece of real estate would be a hole in the ground. And he was right. Instead of calling on the name of the Lord, they they call on the mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So they... They attempt to commit suicide by rock. Oh, and what a telling revelation of the, the wickedness of the human heart. They, they somehow make themselves believe that they can negate, eliminate, escape the consequences of their sin by committing suicide. That's what's happening here. They'd rather hide from God in fear than run to him in faith. As Amir Tsarfati put it, they'll, they'll choose the darkness of the caves rather than the light of Christ. But they escape nothing and no one at all. See, the word of God is clear that, that every person, every one of us, is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Not to die and be reincarnated and find ourselves in this hamster wheel of death and life and reincarnation. Victims of karma. Every person is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And none of us will escape our appointment with judgment. These who dwell on the earth know that the day of the wrath of God has come, but still they do not repent. And that shows us something else, doesn't it, about the stubborn pride of the human heart. Even though the the prospect of imminent, final judgment and wrath by itself is not enough to soften it and move it to repentance. This section closes at verse 17 with perhaps the most important question of all time. The great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Can you? Can I? The answer is actually simple and clear. And in his gospel, the same John, who's our tour guide through Revelation, said, 
whoever believes in the Son, that is Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, the wrath of God remains on him. So let me ask you as we come to a close this morning, which of those two descriptions fit you? Do you possess eternal life as a gift from God on the basis of your own personal faith in Christ? Or do you remain in that lonely place of being an object of the wrath of God? The modern mind wants to cling tightly to the notion that God is so loving, he's so kind that he would never condemn people who haven't received his son. But I want you to know that the Bible says otherwise. The Bible reveals a God who is all loving as clearly as it reveals that same God as one who will deal justly with those who have rejected his grace that was offered exclusively through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There are also many today who falsely believe that because they're religious, maybe because their parents were Christians, they were baptized once, maybe because they go to church, even because they, they do recognize the truth about Jesus, or because they tell themselves, well, I've always been a Christian. So they believe their eternity is secure. I would suggest to you, if you can't remember a time when you made a decision to follow Jesus, the likelihood is that you're not a believer at all. You're a cultural Christian. And if that describes you this morning, I want to say to you that none of that will save you. Even demons know who Jesus is. Even even demons will name that he is Lord, that he is the Son of God. Neither biblical knowledge nor church experience nor the fact of a religious upbringing or religious activities are going to save you. It will only be those who come to God in humble repentance of their sin, place their personal faith in Jesus Christ as God's only provision for solving the terrible predicament of their separation from him because of sin, who will be saved from the coming wrath of God. I can't say it any more clearly than that. And that's why we're here as a church. Now, this is why we exist, to help people to find and follow Jesus and so to escape the wrath that is coming. We want everyone to know God as their merciful, gracious, and loving Heavenly Father and and to grow in a personal, loving, faith-filled relationship with Him. Anyone who has the Son has life. Anyone who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I invite you. No, I urge you to bow your knee, to repent of your sin, and to turn in faith to Jesus Christ while you still have time. Let's pray together, and then we're going to celebrate communion. Lord, these are... uh, 
sobering verses we have considered this morning. And yet they ring so true. And they describe us to a T. Hearts that are hard. Hearts that are resistant. Hearts that are unrepentant, even in the face of impending judgment. The knowledge of impending judgment. The Lord, would you please soften our hearts by the oil of your spirit. And would you lead us by your kindness to repentance and to faith in Jesus, the lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me your great salvation so full, so free. Amen.